0: Welcome to Precept Responsibly, a podcast working to make precepting approachable over happy hour. I'm Jason Mordino. And I'm David Hughes.
1: Let's get into some precepting.
0: All right, listeners, welcome back. Uh, Another episode of Precept Responsibly, uh, one I've been looking forward to uh, a lot. Uh, I met this guest, uh, of course, any other place but Twitter. Uh, Many years ago, when I first joined the platform, uh, felt like I know them uh, intimately and I'm really excited for you to get a chance to uh, meet them and talk with them. Uh, but before we get uh, introducing our guest, uh, Dave, any updates on your end and what you drinking?
1: Uh, I don't know. I don't think I have any major updates in my in my life right now. Uh, last last episode was kind of a, a peak where, where another one of us changed careers. So um, for, for drink tonight, I, I thought I'd get a little fancy tonight. I know all of the listeners usually like, you know, thinking about what I what the disgusting concoction I made. <laughs> but I've been hooked on Paloma's recently, which is a, uh, a tequila based drink with grapefruit juice. And and I think like always, I mean, my my funny pun is always like thinking about counseling patients on grapefruit juice and why patients are so distraught when you tell them they can't drink grapefruit juice, realizing what a great drink grapefruit juice is. So I am drinking a Paloma tonight. Um, as, as to, to spice it up a little bit. What about you? Uh, I, like any good
0: parent of young kids, tortured myself and I went to Storyland in New Hampshire, in Conway, New Hampshire, and I came back with some Tuckerman's Brewing Company, Summer Pills, uh, so I am drinking that tonight, uh, you know, to celebrate surviving Storyland. Um, yeah, that's it for me. Uh, So for tonight's episode, uh, what are we going to talk about? Um, You know, this guest came to mind uh, when we were thinking about how do we um, continue to branch out and do new and unique topics. uh, And one that came to mind was how to access and teach access to medications uh, in the outpatient and specialty world. Um, And as we were thinking about uh, who we wanted to bring on, none other than the uh, advocate and infamous Shannon Rotolo, Dr. Shannon Rotolo, came to mind. Uh, So welcome to the podcast, uh, Shannon. Maybe you could, for the random few that maybe haven't met you uh, or know you, uh, what's your background? What do you do? And um, what's your precepting role?
2: And what am I drinking, Jason? (laughs)
1: Totally forgot yeah, you about the drinking This is why you don't question. introduce topics. It's the one question you can't forget in the intro.
2: Do you know, of, like, as I was, like, preparing to speak with you both tonight, I was like, man, my joke game is going to have to be good. But more importantly, my drink game is going to have to be good. Like, the rest of the content, no stress. Like, whatever. We're just going to have a conversation. But I was like, dang, I got to pick a good drink. Jason's going to have some crazy micro brew. Dave's going to have wine with ice cubes. It's, like, really tasty. <laughs> So the pressure is on. Uh, full circle. Um, <laughs> but no. Okay. So I am Shannon Rotolo. I um, am also going through a career transition. So I'll keep the theme going for another episode. Um, so the last almost 11 years, I've been at the University of Chicago. Um, originally, I am from Rochester, New York. I went to pharmacy school at University of Buffalo in Buffalo, New York. Um, Following that, I did my pharmacy residency training at University of Rochester in the Gala Center Children's Hospital. Um, And from there had a few jobs in different places in the state of New York before moving to Chicago, um, which is an amazing city, can't say enough good things about it. I started off in the inpatient pediatrics world there um, in their first hybrid position in the peds world that was part operations, um, part clinical. Um, Moved into a fully clinical role still in the inpatient world some years later, Um, but through sort of like luck and circumstance and great relationships was able to transition into an outpatient role kind of built my own role um, in our cystic fibrosis clinic. Um, So a little bit of that still clinical component that felt more like an ambulatory role but under the umbrella of our specialty pharmacy and kept my sort of operations or dispensing uh, responsibilities but just in a different world so um, I've always had kind of a mix of things, and I really enjoy that and have really enjoyed my career there. Um, got to work with some great pharmacy students, pharmacy residents um, as a preceptor, and also for some of those years involved in our pharmacy residency training programs as a coordinator and later as an RPD. Um, however, the time has come. i making the move uh, back to Rochester, New York, where I will be back at the University of Rochester. So really come in full circle, and I will be a residency program coordinator there with a plan to expand that into a pharmacy education coordinator in the next five to seven years.
0: Congratulations. It's a huge move. I uh, <laughs> I did you. not realize you were originally in peds, and... Um in in inpatient pharmacy i uh, always assumed based on kind of our interactions that you you grew up in the outpatient side but good to know you have kind of both of those experiences and um love that you're still still doing cf with with the kids and um congrats on the new role it's really exciting yeah
1: congrats thank you
2: and my my drink for tonight is um a wine called sparkle i forget what kind of grape Mm -hmm. it is but it has peachy notes and it is from The Catherine Valley Winery, which I was at this past weekend, um, that's in the Finger Lakes region. And they do an annual event called Greyhounds, where my greyhound, who is more Twitter famous than I am, Radar, um, (laughs) was able to meet some of his cousins from around the region. There are uh, greyhounds there from like Delaware, Connecticut. There are some other sighthounds, some whippets, some Italian greys. Uh, so we had a lot of fun and highly recommend any wine in the Finger Lakes region, but I'm drinking Sparkle tonight.
0: Wow. You came well-prepared, uh, with your drink. Not only did you bring it back to where you live, what you do, but you brought it back to your dog. That's a very impressive, Shannon. The only
1: thing it she left FB out is there's ice cubes, everything there's everything ice cubes floating in her wine glass. So that's the only thing that's uh, that that's left out of that message. I can confirm. I don't
0: see ice cubes.
2: No
1: ice cubes. I'm sorry, Dave. Watch it out. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's uh let's 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 get into this and and start to think about you know medication access and and ultimately how we teach that and you know coming from the oncology space it's it's certainly a very very important topic that we relate back to um, our learners our our students our residents so you know to kick us off we use this term access. What does that mean to you? And specifically, what does that mean when it comes to you know pharmacotherapy, drugs, medications, et cetera?
2: Yeah, so I'm I'm not gonna give you a dictionary definition by any means. Um so to me, access to medications is there's less of a, a specific definition I even use with learners. It's more a mindset. So um I really Think like a huge part of pharmacy for me is, and for all of us, right, should be getting drug to patients. Um, and there are a million things that can go wrong all, along the way. Um, that can be true in the inpatient setting. That can be true in the outpatient setting. Um, but what I really hope that we're all trying to do uh, in 2023 as pharmacists is, you know, of course, provide all the other good, complex, um, and exciting levels of service that we can provide. But ultimately, that we're trying to get drugged patient and that we're trying to do that in a way that's equitable, too, because um, that's sort of the the bread and butter <laughs> um, of pharmacy at the end of the day. And I, I guess we can kind of talk more through some examples of that or, or what the heck I'm, I mean when I say it's a mindset rather than something that I give a definition
1: to. Yeah, but I think it's so. It's such an interesting point, right? To think about, right? You know, all of these novel drugs, and and shout out to the, you know people that are that are looking at these and researching the investigators and trials that are building these drugs and really focus on the on the clinical data. But at the end of the day, when that drug become comes to market, right? Patients have to be able to physically get that drug, and there's uh, so many things that can go wrong in that journey. And and when we think of just you know getting the medication at a pharmacy because of a copay you know, that is not access. That's a component, I think, of access is, I I hope you'll agree, but it, but really it's the other barriers. A lot of the social determinants of health that come into the, into the picture and and all of these different themes that funnel into how can I make sure the patient is set up for success for this therapy, right? Um, Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. And I think like, as I've, you know, thought through this over time, I always say getting drug to patient, but, um, my husband, who's also a pharmacist, has pushed back on me before and kind of said, you know, does it matter if you get the drug to the patient if it sits there on their counter because they don't understand how to take it or they don't have the resources they need to help them stay organized with it and be able to take it? So arguably, you could, you know, be a real uh, nitpicker there like (laughs) in my household and say that it's getting drug into the patient. Um, It's like the the key piece there. And, And it is, right? Like it's, no no drug works unless you take it. So uh, at the end of the day, we have to make that possible
0: for people. Absolutely. And uh, I'll add as like the inpatient person, like we have like access issues. They tend to be less, they tend to be like more system driven or uh, purchasing driven. Um, but there are many times where me as a clinician, I'm focusing on how to get this drug physically to the patient and into them. Faster, um, especially in the ICU. But I, I specifically think of outpatient specialty in particular as like the place with the largest quantity of barriers because they vary so much that it can be like really head scratching. I, I think like you know teaching somebody how to get drug to the patient in an inpatient setting like it's a it's a part of the job, but it's like a pretty quick part. It's like, but in the outpatient setting, it is so complex. You know, our inpatient pharmacists are starting to, like, do more transitional care services. They're doing discharges. They're thinking about these accesses ahead of time. And I can tell you, the the five minutes I've had to do that job, oh, my God, there's so much to learn. Um So, Shannon, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about, like, how do you teach this? But I think before we get into the how, it's like, why is it so important for us to teach our new uh young professionals how to minimize barriers and access medication.
2: So I will, I think your audience is predominantly folks in the inpatient world. So I'm gonna come at it with maybe like a more inpatient uh, example, metaphor here and uh, say this. Um, So let's say I am working in your ICU, Jason. I'm, I'm taking over your prior position. And I am just the most bomb pharmacist at dosing vanco aminoglycosides and everything, right? Just so bomb. This is this is why I can fill your shoes, right? I'm amazing. I can calculate the most <laughs> perfect dose for any patient ever. Um, and you know, someone comes in, I'm calculating their new vanco dose based on levels, and you know, working with my learners, we're going over how to do that. And mm, I could maybe round, but this perhaps isn't a great example. Nice you, maybe in an emergency room, I could round in one direction. Action and it'll be like a one gram dose or I could round up and it'll be a 1.25 gram dose. Maybe I'm not in the ICU. Maybe I'm in the emergency room and they need that dose right the heck now. If I know that I have a one gram bag in a piggyback in the Pixis or a 1.25 in the fridge, but I only have one or the other stocked in the ED, there's a right way to round that in my mind, right? Like mm. clinically, it doesn't matter what my recommendation is. If I send that order off to the IV room instead. And I don't know that they're short staffed tonight, that three pharmacy techs called in because there's some weird weather thing going on and it's going to take two hours for that drug to get to the floor. The drug I can get into the patient now that is roughly the same in terms of accuracy as the other option that is going to get here two hours late. One of those is the right choice right now, right? And one of them isn't. Um, So I think that, you know, kind of to my earlier comment, like medication access is an issue everywhere, depending on Mm. how you want to think of it, or sort of what mindset you want to have around that. Um, And it's really working with your pharmacy team. And again, knowing how to get that drug or expedite that drug to a patient. So I think that it's from that perspective, the mindset of that to me is really important. Um, And I think that that's something that can be instilled in learners in different settings, but I do think, kind of to your guys' earlier points, it is uniquely possible to instill that in learners in the specialty role because the level of barriers is just so high. Um,
1: yeah. So I, I think I like could piggyback off that, and again, I'm 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 unlike Jason. I, I like gravitating towards the outpatient side a little bit more. But when I think of oncology, and I'll never I'll never skip a moment to plug oncology. If I if I use an example like Capecitabine, a, a weight based drug for for all intents. For all purposes, a patient's dose may come out to, let's say, thirteen hundred milligrams. Right, the drug is available as hundred and twenty-five milligram in a five hundred milligram tablet. If you send, you know, you you support your provider and say, okay, I know this is the clinically the right drug. I know the toxicity. I know the clinical profile of this drug. But you that that prescription leaves the practice, and that pharmacy can't fill it because it doesn't align. They have questions to come back. That communication and access, I think, is so critical to ass- to assure that that patient gets that drug, right? And, and I think, right, you think about all of these delays, you know, the, the conversation back and forth, the stress on the patient. There's so many downstream effects of it that really could be alleviated by teaching the emphasis and importance of that to our learners. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I think in both silos, whether you look at inpatient or outpatient, there, there is an utmost importance for teaching this. Um, early on and not forgetting about it as a, as a core element.
2: Absolutely. And I think the other piece here is like medication access, we're, we're teaching problem solving, right? It's not quote clinical problem solving, right? It's not like the fancy problem solving that we're going to like maybe talk about um, on a typical student evaluation or resident evaluation is like the first thing we think of, but it is problem solving. So it mm. is kind of building that same skill set that they're going to need anywhere they go in their careers. Um, and then they're just going to layer that pharmacotherapy knowledge on top of that.
0: I love the, like, you're kind of like bringing about the, like, why should I educate you on this? And and I love that piece about the um, teaching you problem solving skills, right. That it's like a, another form of flexing that muscle. Um, I think one of the things that we, as a profession do a really good job of. It's, you're right, teaching about the like high level clinical things and like the next level therapeutic drug monitoring and like all those fun things. How do you make it so that access, people understand that importance? Do you explicitly sit your learners down and say like, hey, here's this thing that some people think is boring, but it's the most important thing in the world? Or do you just kind of let it be like, this is the normal job, and so you're going to learn these things without it being so such an explicit conversation. How do you like get that importance across to them?
2: I think what helps is, I know that you guys recently had actually a live episode where you talked to some guests about um, a, a variety of topics, but one of them mentioned like, oh, just because they know how to do a med history doesn't mean they know how to do the med history I'm looking for in my rotation, which yes. I simultaneously like, oh, I felt that, but I was also like, oh, this is <laughs> something students hate, right? Um, but when I go through a medication history, I actually don't give a ton of direction on like, this is the right way to do a med history. I say, we will do a med history. You will do a med history. There are a few things I also want you to hit on. And it's a series of questions that are sort of templated into my notes and that have to do with medication access and then medication adherence. Mm -hmm. Um, it's only like a few quick questions, but it is a standard part of every single patient you see. You're going to do a med history, but every single patient you see, you're also going to ask these questions about access and these questions about adherence. Um, and then there are, you know, in addition to like the in-clinic visits and having those questions, there are some that come up just for like your accreditation reasons as part of our like follow-up calls with patients and things like that. Um, but I think that making it just an automatic part of the process mm. gives students an opportunity to every time you're seeing a patient in person, every time you're doing a follow up phone call, um, you're asking these questions and hearing what those problems are. Because I can talk until I'm blue in the face about all of the issues that exist within our healthcare system, as <laughs> you, you both know well from my Twitter feed. Um, but at the end of the day, until the student has kind of butted up against a real life person who is encountering that issue, I don't know, it's all kind of nebulous, man, right? Like it was for me before I moved into the outpatient world. When I was an inpatient pharmacist, I remember one time we were like struggling to discharge someone because we couldn't get their oral antibiotic approved. So we were about to keep them in the hospital over the weekend to continue to get IV or like switch to PO inpatient if we had it on formulary, right? Mm. Um, But like how silly, what a terrible use of healthcare resources. But like, those situations are kind of few and far between when you're in the inpatient world, right? Um, so the outpatient world, it comes up every day. Like, I don't have to convince my learners that uh, access is important because by the end of the week, they're like, holy cow, this patient is having all of these problems getting their medicine. What do we do? And then I can be like, great question. What do we do?
0: <laughs> and kind of
2: walk through that process with them.
0: Yeah. I'm starting to like realize like one of the unique aspects of like your rotation is that it's like in your face, right? Access is like in your face every day. And I think one of the things that like sometimes in the inpatient world, you can give your Rex and walk away and you may not know that access was an issue until two hours a day, three days later, um, unless the nurse tells you or the team tells you or you run into the situation yourself or you're at the bedside and know it. And I think that that's a... That's a great point that like, what's the best teacher other than seeing the consequence, right? Um, that's a great point, Shannon. Thank you so I
1: much. Think, I think one other thing to to plug value to access, right, is is a lot of us can argue, and I know I'll get mixed, mixed feelings on this, but when you look across the U.S., practice differs, right, for pharmacists. There are certain areas of practice where pharmacists have more of a, an advanced scope. Some pharmacists are doing, you know, different levels of care and, and, and they're using their knowledge base in, in different realms and at the end of the day right like when it comes to like physician receptiveness and 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 comfort with working with a multidisciplinary team there's a different value for pharmacists and I don't think I, I can't think of a situation where someone would not value the person that says I know exactly how to get this medication and that becomes a success story that if you have a patient that says uh, or a provider that says i want to use this this combination off label for some type of rare cancer but yet it's not fda approved it's not x ex- it's not you know guideline endorsed but yet there's evidence backing it and you are able to deliver that option to that patient one the, the physician or that provider recognizes as oh my god this is so valuable to have this service but second, that patient has a whole nother perception of what pharmacists can do to deliver care to them. So I think, again, just emphasizing that that level of value is something I used to do constantly with my learners and just paint those success stories and, and have them be part of a success story where they're able to have that that, motive, that moment of, of self-fulfillment and reflection as part of the team.
2: Oh, absolutely. I, uh, I remember my transition from the inpatient to outpatient world and my first time getting like the outpatient computer access turned on and I was in clinic because I had already started taking on some responsibilities without having the full IT set up. Um, and the first time I had the access turned on and someone was mentioning which ICS lava they were about to prescribe for a patient. And I just ran a little test claim just to see, you know, let's just see. That would not have been covered, but I could tell them in half a second which alternative was going to be covered. And we could talk about whether or not that was going to be an appropriate alternative for that patient. at the end of that conversation, that physician was like, oh my God, you're Wonder Woman. I'm (laughs) Wonder Woman. I just have access to an excellent, you know, like quick little check thing. But to them, right, that's really impactful. And it builds rapport very, very quickly compared to me making a bunch of recommendations that like, you know, to your point earlier, Jason, and, um, you know, I might not see the impact of that change for literally months or that physician might not see the impact of that change for literally months on some of the other things I might recommend in the outpatient world, right? But in real time, I can tell them I just avoided them or their office staff, a bunch of very frustrating phone calls and back and forth. Um, So that was, that's kind of a game changer for building rapport with physicians, similarly Mm. with patients. Um, When I call someone and say, hey, your insurance did approve this medication, is the good news. The bad news is this copay is still extremely high. I don't want you to worry yet. I'm going to call you back within the next week. If it's okay with you, I want to look into some different grant fund options. Um, And as well as my team, right? Let's let's not forget that pharmacy techs are the backbone of this. And like, it is team pharmacy. It is not me, the pharmacist doing a lot of this <laughs> offer. Absolutely. Um, but when you can call a patient back in a few days and be like, hey, like my pharmacy technician, Jasmine and I worked on this and guess what? There is a grant fund available. You do qualify. Your copay is going to be $0 compared to that $500 or $2,000 copay. Man, does that build rapport very, very quickly with a patient. And I think that when students or residents see that and see how quickly you can gain that trust, um, that's a much faster way to build a relationship with a patient than they may not be there for the next clinic visit. But if they can have that first phone call instead of me and then that second phone call, wow, does that feel like an incredible win? And now all of a sudden that patient is very ready to ask them questions that they might not have otherwise bothered to ask because that level of trust wasn't there from a phone call alone.
1: Hmm. Yeah. As I I start to think and reflect on this, Shannon, I think one of the things I think about is, right, there's so many different resources available for access, right? Like what level of resource, like, Different types of grant fund, different copay assistance, and and I think like in a in a given either whether it's a six week rotation or for that matter a year of residency it is really hard to to know all of that. And one of our previous guests talked about how do we reduce cognitive load and really like come up with resources that our students or residents can use to to, to really deliver on access. And I'm, I'm curious what your perspective has been, of, or what's been successful for resources that you've shared with your learners to have them start to to understand these these resources available and, and get, a, get a good feel of what access is and what types of support are out there.
2: Yeah, so I think echoing your guys' live session again, uh, I don't always have as much time as I want to compile resources like that. Um, cystic fibrosis has been my main jam, but I also support a bunch of different pulmonary disease states and then a few pediatric disease states, or at least did in my old role. Um, so I didn't always have this like great, like body of, okay, here's everything, you know, need to know for biologics and asthma in terms of access, or here's everything you could possibly want to know about X, Y, Z. Right. Um, so I, in the past, actually, do you know who has an excellent resource for this friend of the podcast, Diana Isaacs, um, had put together one for diabetes management specifically, of going through when do you use a copay when do you use a grant fund what copay programs are out there um i will see if i can find the link and maybe you guys can link it in the show notes but she has an excellent example of that that she and some other clinicians worked on um so i've definitely had students or residents uh, i think more so students in the past um help build similar resources for asthma medications or a separate category like that um but i think the biggest thing that i would do to students to kind of work through access issues is probably just providing examples or sort of templates for appeal letters um Mm. that's pretty uh, like learner friendly in terms of like a low barrier to getting started actually doing some effort toward something for a specific patient so if they can double check that the guidelines have not changed since this appeal letter was last uh written or that template for the appeal letter was last written, figure out if there's any primary literature specifically related to that patient and that drug that maybe didn't make it into the template. Um, that's a quick sort of resource to help them understand what does this letter even need to look like.
0: I, I, um, I, I'm just thinking a little bit back to like what Ryan said about reducing cognitive load and like the idea being um, minimizing extraneous load and and i think what i'm hearing shannon if um and certainly correct me if i'm wrong because i could very easily be wrong but um what i'm hearing is that the the act of problem solving for these and finding these resources and finding the ways around these bar- these barriers to access is the the thing that you're trying to teach and therefore that is not extraneous load that's not something that you necessarily want to like take off at of their plate you want to say No, 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 no. This is your plate. This is this is the germane load, the germane load of And therefore, like providing them like a detailed cheat sheet is kind of like saying, you don't actually need to know this information when in reality they do. Right. Or you
2: just need to know how to use it. Absolutely. And I, I think that there are resources out there, but like a lot of things change, right? Like if you think about a typical insurance plan, they probably update their formulary every single year. So I can't just give you a copy of hundreds of different insurance plans, formularies, right? And expect that to be helpful to you. It will change every year. Um, And you really, you don't always know these things until you submit a PA for some of these drugs Um, or sort of, I think, worst case scenario, because I haven't seen more frequent than this. Um, In Illinois, our Medicaid, our state Medicaid plan can change their formulary quarterly, four times a year Uh. that can change. So it's way better for me to just uh, orient you to the link uh, where you can find that, right? And give you the information that is consistent across the various managed Medicare or sorry, Medicaid plans for the state as well, versus, you know, provide you some kind of printout or whatever else. So it's kind of, you know, similar to clinical problem solving to your point in um, teaching in that, that area. Let me show you where to find the information rather than let me bring the information to you.
1: Mm, I love that. You know, Shannon, one of the things you brought up before was really focusing on, you know, the success, right? What is the output that, you know, you have physician acceptance, patient gets met, like you have these success stories in clinic and, and, and surely students, residents, they learn from that. They, they see the, the real time value in that, you know, I'm curious of, of how you teach through failures. Cause obviously there's times where, you know, you might get PA denials, patients calling back, Hey, I I thought I was getting this medicine two weeks ago, nothing happened. Um, How do you teach learners through those failures and, and help them overcome the next, the next barrier. So it doesn't happen again.
2: Yeah. So I think one of the things that I'll go back to that we kind of touched on earlier is team pharmacy, right? Like if something isn't happening for a patient, if I, think that I had a successful appeal, maybe I even heard back that it was a successful appeal or my student wrote an appeal and they heard back uh, through my voicemail <laughs> line that it was a successful appeal. Um, and we go to process the claim and it doesn't, it's still not adjudicating, what the heck, right? Like we, we just heard back, this was fine. I'm gonna assume I did something wrong, right? <laughs> like i I guess I think it's teaching with humility. Like I miss things, I don't get things right all of the dang time, I call up my partners on Team Pharmacy. I call up my pharmacy technician Latrina and say, hey, why is this not going through? And I want my students to see me do that, right? Like that I don't have every single answer that we can work the process appropriately and things can still fall apart at the end because of little weird things about maybe our computer system, maybe something in the insurance company's computer system that then Latrina and I putting our brains together, both aren't gonna figure out. Um, So really kind of, walking through my own sort of like pain, po- it, it's more often I would say pain points than failures. Um, are students going to write appeal letters that get rejected, that the the this decision doesn't get overturned? Absolutely, but so am I, right? Mm. Like, so am I. If we're writing this appeal letter in the first place, this is probably an off-label therapy. We are probably going to have some challenges. And then at that point, okay, we've hit a brick wall that we can't get through if we've already done multiple appeals where we've already done a peer-to-peer. What else can we do? And then talking through those possibilities, is this a drug where now that I have two denial letters, maybe the drug company is going to pay for it? Or is this, do we have an alternative that we could consider for this patient? And why did we choose this in the first place? And what were those alternatives? And like, are they really that much worse for the patient than continuing to wait for this appeal that's clearly not been successful two rounds and probably won't on the third? Um, So- kind of, again, sort of like teaching through problem solving. Um, but really, it is never a failure on my learner's part when mm. things aren't going the way that we expect. It is just ongoing evidence that there are holes in the system. And I think really emphasizes to the importance of closing the
0: loop, which Absolutely. I know is
2: a big theme in the inpatient world too, right? Closing the loop.
0: Absolutely. It's all about communication. Um, Shannon, I- I'm thinking about like Dave, right? He, while well, he had an impatient focus, he essentially works specialty uh, access. And if he were to come to your rotation, you may teach him something differently or uh, more advanced than like someone like me, like the dope who's going to go into impatient and is like, I just want to survive your rotation, Shannon. <laughs> um, how do you approach those two learners, like dope Jason versus like, uh, you know, Soon to be outpatient specialist, uh, Dave. And what do you do differently for each one of them?
2: I'm going to argue that the, while I do a ton of customization in terms of teaching style and, hey, like, where do we want to spend more of our time? Oh, you're interested in PEDS? Like, let's spend a little bit more time in those patient populations I service versus some of the other pulmonary populations. Um, I'm going to argue that medication access, we should all know about it because. Jason, not a dope, a very smart person who's going to end up in the ICU at some point, right? Um, You need to understand why that patient in DKA keeps showing up in DKA and that like, that, you know, that there is some barrier they're butting against and you don't need to be able to solve it. You need to know who to call Mm. on your outpatient team that is going to take it from there for you, right? Absolutely. Um, So I think that medication access like truly is going to touch us all in any role. Uh, from a professional standpoint, right? Like you're going into community pharmacy. Oh my God, this is going to come up all the time. And maybe you're not the one doing that PA or doing that appeal, but like, it's going to give you the perspective of what the team on the other end of the phone or the fax machine is going through, right? So like you want that perspective. It makes you a better, more patient, more well-rounded clinician. So from a professional standpoint, like I don't think there's anyone that can't benefit from at least having a feel for what that process looks like from a personal standpoint, we are all going to get older one day, right? Like our parents are all going to get older one day. My mom is currently the primary caretaker for her aging mom, right? Like Mm. we are all in our real lives going to butt up against medication access issues on an infinite timeline. It will happen to every single one of us. So I think there's also like, maybe this is kind of sad, right? But I think there's also value in making sure that my learners walk away with a little bit of understanding of what this process looks like and sort of how they or their families can advocate for themselves um, in a scenario where maybe they need this information one day.
0: Shannon, we, we just tried to veer away on the, the previous topic from the thing I'm excited to talk to you about, uh, a, a little bit of kind of some of your work in the advocacy space. So we talked about the failures and what to do um, as you're like trying to to teach through some of those failures. Can you maybe walk us through kind of some of the work that you've done around advocating for medication access, um, why it's so important? And then after we talk about that, loop in like kind of your learner piece when you get to that advocacy point.
2: So I think the other thing that we'll see with failures, so I talked about relying on team pharmacy. Um, The other thing we'll see with quote failures, failures in big quotes here, um, is that again, it's not a failure of the learner. It's not a failure of mine. It's a failure of the system in a lot of these cases. Um, And so in that case, we push, push, push. We do everything we can for the patient. We maybe make some pivots, but it's also important to kind of follow through on why is this system broken in this way, in my opinion? Hmm. Um, So because of that, in my outside of work time, Um, I do get involved in a fair amount of advocacy um, with both state-based and national organizations um, and sometimes very, very small grassroots things um, to try and improve access to medication. And while uh, I'm sure it will be pretty obvious for anyone who does uh, know me through Twitter or maybe depending on where this conversation goes that I certainly lean one specific way politically, I think it's really important to remember That across political parties, it doesn't matter if you're talking to a Democrat, a Republican, an independent um, individual, almost everyone will tell you that medication cost is an issue. Everyone. Like, it doesn't matter how you feel. This is a bipartisan thing. Americans will tell you medication costs and medication access are big issues.
0: Absolutely knowing that all of these access issues are here, they're baked into the system, right? There's not much we can do about it right this minute. Um, Do you educate your learners on what are potential alternatives? Do you talk to them about what those things look like? And do you ever engage them in the steps of trying to make change?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I will say sometimes my learners educate me on what they think that those next steps should look like. And so it's definitely... uh, a two-way street in terms of communication, right? Like when we hit a failure, um, if students or residents have had previous experiences where they've butted up against these things in the past, they may already have some opinions on what could have been helpful or um, other things they've seen, especially for folks that are maybe doing an out-of-state rotation, because I've had a lot of folks do that with me. Um, They may have had a different experience in a different state, right? And will tell me how this would work somewhere else. Um, so that can be pretty exciting and a lot of fun and maybe some opportunities to think about, is there a piece of state-based legislation that could work here? Mm-hmm. Um, there are tons of opportunities for pharmacists and pharmacy learners to get involved in advocacy. And I think that when we think about this, we often think about, like, the email blast that, like, APHA sends out, right? Or, like, yeah. a pharmacy day at your local, um, you know, and... and local state capital. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Um, So I think that we sort of in our professional world have like really specific pictures in our minds of like, oh, this is what advocacy looks like. It may or may not feel engaging to us. It may or may not be of interest to us at all. Right. Um, But it's really can be so much beyond that. Um, So one of the things that I personally had a great experience with, and a few of my pharmacy students had a great experience with Um, many years ago, I connected with some folks through the magic of Twitter um, about how Illinois did not have prescription drug repository programs. Um, So about 30-something states do have this. Essentially, like if you have an unopened, um, unexpired medication still in its original packaging, you could potentially, in states that have drug prescription repository programs, donate that. And somebody else who can't get access to that medication could then use it for either $0 or a very low fee, depending on how it's structured in your state. Illinois did not have this. So people are just wasting medications, right? Like they're no longer using, maybe a loved one has passed. And like you, maybe they're not someone who can donate organs, but gosh, it would have been nice to be able to donate their extremely high cost chemotherapy, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Or oral cancer agent. Um, So instead right we're like we're putting these things in incinerators or they're going into water or soil or like you know ending up in our on our planet in one way shape or form um and we really needed an opportunity the more the more of these medications that get handed back to you and you as a pharmacist know that the sticker price and you're slowly like another one bites the dust (laughs) um you know it's it's very sort of sad to see that not end up with a patient who you know needs that med that same medication, maybe right? Because you're working in one clinic where a lot of people maybe are using the same medication. Um, so that was something that I got involved with another pharmacist in the state, a med student, a couple med students at the time, um, a few other individuals, some patient advocates, um, really pushing forward some legislation related to prescription drug repositories, mm-hmm. and. A few of my students actually got to go outside of a pharmacy day, talk to our elected officials in Springfield, and have meetings, actual conversations with those folks that weren't sort of the maybe stiff or uncomfortable pharmacy day conversations that you can sometimes see when you're trying to cram a dozen plus learners into a room. When there are four people in that room, it's a very mm. different feel, it's a very different conversation. Um, and I think that those are such great opportunities for students if they're engaged and, and want to be part of that. Um, so when those kind of opportunities come up, I do offer them to my learners that, you know, if you want to join these folks, and it may not even be a day that I'm going, right? Like, I, I trust that pharmacy students and pharmacy residents have had a lot of experience already working with patients, whether that was on my rotation or, like, more broadly. Um, and can you know kind of speak to what are the issues that they see coming up for their patients? And you know, to my earlier comment, what are the issues that they themselves see coming up, or their family members see coming up related to medication access, and how might this piece of legislation be helpful with that?
1: I think one thing I, as as you reflect, Shannon, is is you know advocacy state legislator really seem like if if I was a pharmacy student, let's say I'm a P one or P two maybe it grabs my interest, right? And says, I have an interest as so you get to appies, but yet it seems like such a stretch. Like I can't do this for so many years. It just seems like only the really, really advanced pharmacists or professionals get involved here. And maybe you don't, maybe there is or is not an opportunity to offer like a, a convenient way to do that. I guess if you had one piece of advice for a learner as they're starting to say, you know, I have an interest in advocacy, what's that first fundamental step they, that preceptors can share with their learners to say hey maybe you should join x organization or get involved in this what is that magic first baby step
2: first step um the first step is nail down what you're interested in but like the first step if i'm giving a talk on this is show up mm. is the easiest thing you can do and that can be you know whether related to firm is here or not right like if you want to show up at a rally or protest or whatever the heck you want to call it numbers matter right like when when our elected officials are considering these things when there's a press release about these kind of things having 20 people versus 100 people versus a thousand people like those numbers make it into print those numbers draw headlines so like just showing up and you don't have to know everything you have to know your experience right like you have firsthand, frontline, been working with patients. I know you have. You've done it on my rotation. I've seen you do it and you're amazing. And you've heard these stories now. You've been here for a couple of weeks. You have heard over a dozen different patients tell you that they can't afford their medicine. I can show you the polls. I can show you all that stuff. I can help you like gather the information and the numbers. But guess what? Elected officials, much like the C-suite in a hospital, do not care about the numbers. They care about the narrative. And I know my learners have that narrative. So it's reminding them, you are the expert on this already. You don't have to learn any more about drug X, Y, Z. You already know what issues your patients are facing. You know what issues you're facing at your part-time community pharmacy job. You can speak to that. Um, So I think it's really not so much me teaching them how to do it. It's me kind of bolstering and letting them know that you're already the expert and you're part of a historically very well-respected well-trusted profession and to kind of step into that and just show up and the rest of it is going to start to come together you're going to build relationships you're going to meet people who can show you the ropes it's not always going to be me right like maybe I aren't in the same space as I am in terms of what they're advocating for but they're going to find people there to mentor them the way, the same way that I did
0: I think that that is like um Phenomenal advice as someone who uh partake in founding an advocacy organization. Um, the first step was really like just putting yourself out there, showing up, and then like the people just start to kind of coalesce. And then once you start to coalesce and you find your people, like then you can start to do like the next big thing.
1: And um like Twitter all over again. It's like Twitter all over again. You show up, you find your people, and then you move on to threads. (laughs)
2: Uh,
0: (laughs) yeah sure right jason you can find me on threads you can find me on threads uh at jason mordino farm d i'll be there uh i'm struggling a little bit on twitter lately but uh yeah i mean that's honestly that's where i found my advocacy team that's where i found the people that i like connect with it's how i knew what shannon was like really into like uh, i mean people like joke that like social media is the place for you to like go and like scream something into the void and do nothing and i think that they're true if that's where you stop if you leave your advocacy just on social media yeah you, you might engage a few other people to join in your cause but unless you're doing things in the real world with people you're not taking it that next step further um so i i Thank you, Shannon. I I think that that is definitely um, a great takeaway for any learner listening and any person interested in advocacy that wants to get their learner engaged. It's like social media is a great start to find your people, but then start connecting offline, doing things and taking those those next steps of just showing up.
1: Well, as, as we think about, you know, Taking and in, in tying down and, and closing up here, Shannon. I, I really wanted to thank you for all of the the input here, um, going through you know not only from access but ultimately the advocacy. One of the things we we constantly ask is as a nugget for our for our listeners is what is one thing you took from a precept or a mentor that you used in your educational practice today? Um, something that sticks with you, um, both either either good or constructive.
2: Oh, I, I cannot distill it to one nugget as you've noticed throughout the evening. I'm an extremely long-winded person. Um, but I will tell you about um, probably the first time I realized how important access was um, was I was doing a rotation in the emergency department at the University of Rochester with the phenomenal preceptor and phenomenal clinician, Nicole Aquisto. And I watched her know exactly who to call, not just what the number was for the IV room, but exactly which phone to call to get the pharmacy tech that was going to get her the specific type of product she wanted the fastest in a medical emergency. Like something that we needed maybe for an OB emergency that isn't regularly stocked net Omnicell or Pixis or whatever we had at the time. She knew exactly who to talk to on team pharmacy that would get her that drug as quickly as possible. And I think to me, that kind of ties back, right, to that medication access piece that we've been talking about all night, is you can be the most bomb clinician. You can be the coolest person she rode to work on a motorcycle, and would she would have been mad cool anyways, right? Um, I would have been in awe of her regardless. But the fact that she understood how to get the drug to the patient in the fastest way possible... Um, because she understood how to work within that team and because she understood what was going on behind the scenes in that operations area was just like blew my mind. Um, And I think that that is something that clearly has stayed with me as I've thought about like what really matters in the role of pharmacy. It's, It's knowing your team, it's working with your team to get the patient the drug they need, despite all of the barriers that will always be working against you in the U.S. healthcare system.
0: I absolutely love that shannon. and And I think that was a, a phenomenal example of yes. like bringing it all back together. and like you really have like found your theme. It is central to you as a human, and you have just, lived that over and over and i i love to see it
1: um jason heard bike jason heard bike and cool and immediately thought he was like the coolest kid in the room right now the the (laughs) uh the follow-up question that i was about to
0: ask uh was is biking just as cool as riding a motorcycle because if so it's definitely i'm definitely a cool kid on the block
2: (laughs) You no, know, I. Do you have a cool helmet, Jason? Like, do you no. have Dino? Like, oh, it's bright
0: neon, bright green. neon yellow, bright green. Neon green. <laughs> it's a high vis, super nerdy helmet. Uh, I don't wear a high vis
1: vest yet, but I, I'm, I'm cool kid on the block.
2: <laughs> I don't know, man. High vis vest, leather jacket. They do have two different vibes. The fashion is a little different. <laughs>
0: All right, I'm I'm with you on this. I'm I, I'm. I understand my position and I am okay being uh <laughs> nerd with a capital N. Um <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Shannon, do you have any resources uh that say someone that's new to the access game uh could potentially use to support um kind of their journey uh down understanding medication access?
2: Sure. Yeah, so we will link in the <laughs> show notes. Um yep. I... Um do have an article uh, that's available as, I think, I don't know if the CE is still active on it, um, but through ICHP, um, the Illinois chapter, um, do have an article that talks about a pharmacist role in a pediatric lupus clinic, which is something that I started um, at the University of Chicago. And that template will actually go through some medication access and medication therapy management uh, questions that I would typically ask of a pediatric patient and their family. clinic that's something that I kind of borrowed as an idea from the cystic fibrosis space and my experience there and seeing what others were doing in that world um so I think that's a helpful way if you want to just work it into your routine to always ask about access after you do a medication history um to start that process if you heard the term prescription drug report prescription drug repository for the first time today and are like gee does my state have one of those maybe we need one um the iDrop website the Illinois prescription drug repository.org website has some great resources related to understanding prescription drug repositories. And if you live in Illinois, it has some direction on how you can make um, medication donations or where to find medications if you're looking for that resource. Um, and then my main jam in terms of advocacy for those who don't know is usually single payer or Medicare for all. Um, you can definitely find more information about single payer and Medicare for all um, at pharmacist for a single payer, if you're interested in joining there. And then there's also really robust uh, library of resources available through PNHP, which is Physicians for a National Health Program on that topic. And please uh, find me on Twitter, reach out to me, you know, in any space you can. Um, if you want to talk more about single payer or Medicare for all, because I could talk to you about that all night
0: <laughs> <laughs> um absolutely we'll make sure that we link all of those resources in our show notes all that information for any listener that wants to grab it and um shannon how can that what is your hashtag or your, not your hashtag
1: what is your uh handle you've been twitter? on twitter that long handle come
2: on yes um it is on twitter at sweet chinchilla uh i've I will not give you the backstory tonight but maybe over another drink another time um, but on Twitter I am at sweet chinchilla and on threads if that ends up last thing it is the sweet chinchilla
0: right I will find you on both <laughs> uh, and I will take you up on the the additional drink the next time in upstate New York
1: I, I really thank you for for your time tonight it, it's been a it's been a beyond a pleasure. Um, really hope, uh, you know, the listeners enjoyed and, and learned a lot from Shannon. You know, I have. Um, but thank you. Thank you for tonight and, and enjoy your evening until next time, listeners. Hope you all enjoyed today's episode. We thank you for listening. Uh, I
0: just want to remind people, if you have an idea for an episode or you want to drop an audio comment or question, uh, you know, record yourself 30 seconds uh, on your phone. Send it to us uh, at preceptresponsibly at
1: gmail.com. We also are on social media, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Find all of our episodes on your favorite podcast providers. We also have these as videos on YouTube. Today's
0: episode was produced by Spencer Sutton. Music by Alex Grohl. That's it for
1: Precept Responsibly. I'm Jason Mordino. And I'm Dave Hughes. Until next time, thanks all for listening. Like
2: trying not to pay attention to the chat because you were like, "Don't worry about the chat," but I was like, I think "Yeah, don't worry about the chat." In there.
1: Our <laughs> <sense> in there. <laughs> <laughs>